So folks, I am so excited to have Matt Sonnen coming on uh, the DealQuest podcast. And Matt, just give me a little idea. I mean, you know, uh, some people know you're, you're in the RA space where we both spend a lot of time. We're going to be focusing a little bit, uh, you know, there. Um, but what are they going to hear about on the, your episode of DealQuest? We're combining my world and your world uh, in this conversation. So, so you, you're the deal guy and I'm the ops guy. And so we're talking about how uh, important it is to think through post-merger integration and some of those uh, in the weeds operational issues that come about when you're trying to merge two firms and really bring success in, in a merger. Yeah, no question. And, you know, and then we talk about some trends in the industry, right, that we see and what Matt's experience has been. Uh, and then uh, we actually, uh, there was something that uh, prompted uh, me to say, hey, Matt, come on, that we ended with. Uh, you don't have to give the, the tips, but, uh, but I know, uh, you know, I know we, uh, we're going to end on that. Uh, what, what, uh, what is that category of five things that uh, you're going to tell everybody? Yeah, the top five mistakes, um, top five mistakes buyers make when integrating acquisitions. Now that is gold right there. And the rest of the interview is going to be great as well. Uh, so look out for Matt Sonnen's episode of DealQuest. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Matt Sonnen founded PFI Advisors to help existing RIAs tackle the various operational and strategic issues that arise as they continue to grow and to help billion dollar breakaway teams start their own RIAs. As an M&A as M&A activity has continued to increase in our industry, Matt is often asked to tap into his integration experience while at Focus Financial Partners from 2013 to 15. Uh, prior to Focus, he carried out two full system replacements while COO and CCO of Luminous Capital. And he has 20 years of industry knowledge experience uh, to help your firm reach its full potential. Matt Sonnen, I am so excited to have you on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you so much, Corey. You and I have known each other. You, you just said I've had 20 years experience in the industry. We've known each other 13, maybe? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of let's just say like a lot that. of that time. <laughs> yeah, this is great. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's great to have you on. And, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, that we've done on this podcast is, uh, is really talk about all aspects of deals. We've gone everywhere from you know, how entrepreneurs prepare their uh, and to even free themselves up just to be able to have the space and availability to do deals to, you know, how you find deals, how you structure deals, how you close deals, how you negotiate them, how they're valued. And then, uh, you know, we've had one or two folks over the 105 episodes or whatever, uh, at the, well, probably be more out by the time your episode comes out, but at least at this recording, uh, you know, who've talked gener in, you know, in, in general about maybe cultural integration, 
post-merger and things like that. Um, but with my, uh, especially with my RA industry guests, we have not talked about what happens post-deal. Uh, and we all know in general, most of us who've done any kind of deals know that, uh, you know what, closing the deal is not <laughs> the last thing. They all don't work out. Um, and, and some of them are messy. So, uh, you know, uh, Matt is somebody who, I don't know anybody in the industry who really does what Matt does with the type of experience that he has in terms of these kind of, you know, operational and strategic and, you know, issues. And we're going to be focusing, you know, on how they relate to deals. But before we do all that, Matt, I want to take you back to when you growing up as a, as a little, as a little kid, you know, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, providing strategic and operational consulting and advice in the RA space probably wasn't it. In fact, my guess is you probably didn't even know what an RA was back then, but you tell me if I'm wrong. So I would say at eight, I wanted to be the third baseman of the California Angels. Mm. And I would say at 18, I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, too. Sports, music, you know, maybe if we go yeah. a little earlier, you, you wanted to be an astronaut and then you have it, you have it all covered, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so being a quote operation, a tech, an operations and technology consultant for the RIA industry was not high on my list as a child. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, the shocking thing would be whether it was even on your list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, um, and what, what is your first deal you can remember? It could be some something fun you did as a little kid. It could be something you were involved in, you know, uh, you know, as a as an adult. Just you know, the first first kind of deal of any type you remember. Probably baseball cards. Um, I was early, I guess mid eighties, uh, mid to late eighties. I was I was big into baseball cards. So tra- trading cards on the on the playground at recess. That that would those would be my first uh, uh, deals. <laughs> those are definitely deals, right? You know, no, I won't give you these two for that, you know, you know, all-star player, you know, so uh, I love it. I love it. So, um, you know, obviously I gave a little bit in in your bio and and then just sort of in my experience with you, but, you know, why don't you just uh, give a couple of more sentences on, on, on what you do now generally. And then also, you know, I mean, um, in, in a recent conversation, um, uh, last week, uh, you know, you were telling me actually that, you know, so much of your work right now is driven by the M&A in the industry, right? Yeah, we, we so we, we just hit our, uh, we just completed our fifth year of business, PFI Advisors. And when we launched uh, in 2015, we kind of went to market as, oh, we're the breakaway specialists helping advisors leave the wirehouses and start RIAs. And we're, we're definitely still doing that. But because of where, you know, here in 2021 now, where the, where the market, where the RIA market is, I think 75% of our engagements right now are a buyer giving us a call, frantic buyer calling us saying, I just closed my first deal. Uh, I'm a, you know, billion dollar, $2 billion firm. And we just bought a $300 million RIA, $400 million RIA, whatever it may be. Uh, Now what? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're using completely different systems. We don't know how to integrate. Um, we specialize in um, ultra high net worth clients and the, the firm we bought, we wanted to get into a different client segmentation. So, so they're more mass affluent. So we're, we're realizing very quickly now that the processes and the, and the service model uh, are, are very different. So how the heck are we going to integrate these businesses? So that's the majority of our, of our work right now. And we'll, we'll see how long, I mean, you know better than I do, but it feels like this, this trend is going to continue for a while now. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, so I, I'm assuming that all of these people call you like, 
you know, six months in, 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 in advance of closing to get, you know, your advice to prepare for this stuff in advance and it's all orderly, right? <laughs> I can I can hear the sarcasm in your voice. You can? That, that would be good. Um, uh, but no, it's usually after the fact. It's, it's yeah. well, we just thought getting the deal done was was you know what was gonna was gonna be the hard part and um, you know with all your negotiation uh, uh, advice I'm sure you know the book um, never split the difference sure and and he says you know that the FBI hostage negotiator he says the quote that that resonates so much so much with me because of what I do yes is nothing without how and so <laughs> we try to help with that they think I just need to get to the yes as long as I can get a yes from the from the uh, from the seller, as long as I can get a yes and get the get them signed on the dotted line, everything else is done. But then that's when the actual work begins. Is that that whole how part is how are we going to integrate these businesses? Yeah, and, and it's interesting for me as somebody obviously who gets involved earlier in the process. Although sometimes people are you know come to us late late as well. But yeah. um, you know, and, and you know, one of the things I always talk about, and you know, is some of this stuff should be fundamental part of your due diligence when you're even evaluating you know, a firm, um, is those kind of differences, is those kind of, you know, what is it going to take to integrate it? Uh, and, you know, I think the bigger players who've done multiple deals do better at that. Um, but what are some of the, let, let's start out, like, what are some of the things that, that, I mean, you sort of mentioned them a little bit, but what are some of the things that, that firms who are uh, considering a, uh, a deal and have, you know, maybe are in early negotiations, um, what kind of due diligence questions should they be asking, asking to even identify these issues that may come up later, you know, post-closing? It, it's so hard. And, and you know, I'm, I, I don't mean to be flippant about it. I'm the, the ops guy. And so it, it's, it's very difficult to get to the finish line of, of yeah. getting a deal done. And so I totally get it. As the buyer, you don't want to scare the seller away. You don't yeah. want to make it sound like, oh, geez, if you join here, you know, we're going to be very bureaucratic and we're going to demand you do things our way. But from a operations perspective, it sure, life sure is going to be easier if everybody's on the same page of we're going to need efficiencies. We're going to need to be on the same page with some things. We, we, we want to give you some leniency and let you continue. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different buyers out there now. Some say you can keep you the seller, you can keep your own branding. Many say, no, you're going to go with our branding. Um, some say you can keep your technology stack. Others say, no, you have to go on to ours for, for efficiency purposes. So um, just, I think where, where, where buyers, buyers that haven't done a lot of deals where they run, run into trouble is they're just so nervous to dictate. I don't want to say that. I don't mean to use that word, but dictate the terms during the dating process. And so then everybody seems to be shocked. I mean, I've had sellers say to me, no one told me my email address was going to change. <laughs> I'll say, but your brand changed. <laughs> how, how did, yeah, but I didn't think my email, like, <laughs> so I get it. You don't want to go through this laundry list of these are things that we're going to force you to change. But at the same time, it, it just, it'll save some amount of time on the back end if everybody's on the same page of operationally how this is going to work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally makes sense. So, you know, typical, uh, you know, client, obviously I was being, being, uh, facetious there. Uh, so typical client, you know, the deal, the deal's closed. They, uh, they call you in or maybe they spend a little time trying to integrate stuff and they realize, Whoa, this is more than I thought. And they call, call you guys in. 
Um, you know, what are the types of things that, uh, you know, is it, does it lean towards more towards technology? Does it, uh, is it other systems? Is it, you know, what, what's the scope of things that come up for these firms? If it's a, if it's a, the deal's already been done and they've already started um, uh, the, the integration work, it's, it's the core technology systems that are going to be, need to be integrated would be yeah. performance reporting, right? The buyer says, oh, geez, we're using Adapar, they're using Tamarack, or we're using Orion and they're using, uh, they're using Advent or, you know, whatever it may be. So, yeah, yeah. so integrating the performance reporting tool, helping them figure out which one the, the, the unified firm should move forward with. And then they can outsource that project to us of just getting the data from one, one system to the next. So performance reporting is a big one. Um, CRM is always a big one. Um, um, the uh, financial planning tools, um, um, those you, you, you could uh, keep separate if, if you wanted to, but usually again, just for efficiency's sake, you want all the employees using the same systems because they're, they're familiar with them. So the financial planning tool um, and then uh, once the performance reporting tool changes, that also is going to change uh, the client portal, which is obviously the, the client facing uh, yes. a piece of the business. So that's always a, a very uh, anxiety driven uh, decision as well as what's the new client portal going to be for the for the unified firm. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, there's so many other things that they've been navigating, especially when it comes to clients, right? Like, is that decision of branding is going to change? You know, do, the, do you have to repaper the client? So can you assign yeah. agreements? You know, so there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's uh, some of it is that's just the efficiencies versus independence. And then there's sort of the client um, facing aspects of it where, you know, everybody is interested in not having it be as disruptive to clients, but there's always going to be some level of dis disruption, right? Yeah, we, we, if, if we do have the ability to talk to, to buyers ahead of a transaction, we tell them all the time, you're going to want to be multi-custodial. You're going to want to learn the, the, the nuances of, of the, the, the major custodians because to get through all of these other hurdles in a, to get a deal done, to then at the end, get, get to the end and then say, oh, and by the way, you're going to have to repaper all your clients because we don't have a relationship with Pershing or we don't have a relationship with Fidelity. You're going to have to come over to Schwab or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, that, that is a problem <laughs> uh, in terms of trying to get the deal done. So the buyers should, if, if you want to get into the M&A game, we always recommend you go and get a relationship with, with the, the, the major custodian so that um, when a seller does come and it happens to say, oh, I'm at Pershing. Oh, yes, absolutely. We have a relationship with them. You can keep your clients there. Um, we have some familiarity with their systems, et cetera. So um, definitely that is one that we try not to change. Um, if it's RA to RA, of course, if it's uh, 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 leaving the employee model and coming to an RA, obviously they're, they're going to be forced to, uh, to repaper. But um, an RA to RA acquisition merger um, we, we try not to repaper for sure. So, you know, we talked in your bio, you know, you, you worked at uh, two major, you know, firms, right? Luminous and Focus Financial, uh, both of which grew, grew in different ways and, you know, made and, you know, had their own uh, deals of various types. Um, and, uh, you know, so what, what was it that, and, you know, obviously you don't have to attribute this to any particular firm or whatever, but, you know, like, so, you know, uh, like you have definitely sort of traded off that experience there, you know, of, of helping firms that size grow. And, you know, one of the criticisms that sometimes comes for any consultant of any type is, you know, that, uh, they're consulting on stuff they really have never actually right. done in, in your case, uh, you know, that, that is so far from true. 
Um, so, you know, um, you know, what, what are some of the lessons you learned over the years that you apply now uh, to help your clients? I think the biggest lesson I learned sitting in the chief operating officer seat at Luminous Capital, uh, the, the biggest lesson I learned, and, and I use this with, with breakaway advisors all the time when they're thinking of coming and starting their own firm, outsourcing is somewhat of a myth. <laughs> you still, you know, I thought, oh, as the COO and we're, we're going to outsource uh, uh, technologies, I just need to get the, the two vendors on the phone together and I can basically go to sleep during the call and I don't really need to know what's going on. You need somebody in, in, uh, in that seat in-house that, that knows you don't have to know everything. You're definitely, you know, you're using a, 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 a outside firm for performance reporting for the, for the nitty gritty calculations, but you need somebody that understands how the data works inside that system and how the data is going to flow from that system into another system. Um, you know, you need to know how, if your phones go down, you need to, you can't just say, well, we've, we've, we've got a phone company, they'll take care of it. You need to know to go into the server room and unplug the switch and plug it back in and <laughs> uh, you, you can save yourself a lot of time. So that was the biggest thing I think I learned um, coming into the RIA space. Everybody says you're outsourcing all these major functions. Um, it really isn't like being at a, a larger firm, you know, that where all those things are taken care of for you, somebody, and again, it's usually that COO role needs to, to know how these systems are working. So that was the biggest thing I think I learned um, and, and got just so well-versed in things I never, I mean, talk about, again, being an 18 year old, I never thought I would understand uh, uh, phone systems, computer systems, um, cloud-based uh, uh, systems, et cetera. So um, it, it's, it's an interesting education you get uh, on the job. And it's interesting what you say, because the same thing really applies to RA firms with their, with, their, um, with their CCOs as well, right? I see that all the time where, you know, they outsource to, you know, an outsource, outsource compliance consulting firm and even, you know, the great ones, which, you know, you and I know and deal with, um, you know, there's, there's only, you know, I mean, they can take a chunk of the burden off, but there's some things, somebody's got to be on site, not only because yeah. it's required to have, you know, an internal, you know, a, a, a either employed or contract, you know, CCO um, outside the compliance firm, but, but also because just the practical day-to-day -day implementation and, you know, monitoring and, you know, um, and, and application of, uh, you know, uh, you know, you need an in-house person there too. And I see firms make that mistake as well, where they just assume they're going to outsource to a, um, you know, to a, a compliance consulting firm on the compliance side and, uh, and they have, and they run into trouble because nobody's watching the ship. That's you know, an even sorry. better example because I wore that hat too, a CCO hat, and and through a routine audit, the SEC walks in and they say, "Who's the CCO?" And you raise your hand and they start asking questions. You can't say, "I don't know." Here's the phone number. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you've got to be able to answer intelligently. Of, of this is our compliance program. This is how things work. So you're you're 100 right that that yes, you're getting help from an outside uh, uh, compliance consultant, but somebody in house needs to be well versed in, in how all of that works. 100. percent Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. 
I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Yeah, so we alluded to this already, you know, with sort of the trends of, you know, what's happening in your business and that we've also anticipate that the M&A volume, uh, you know, is, is, is going to continue and, and, and probably increase for the foreseeable future in this industry. It's a maturing industry. There's a lot of capital that's coming to it, et cetera. Um, you know, I think everybody sees those trends and whether it's the investment bankers or, you know, lawyers or, uh, you know, the uh, platforms out there, everybody's predicting that. Um, what is that, you know, from a strategy and operations point of view for these kind of firms, the fact that there is uh, more consolidation and growth, you know, what does that mean sort of, you know, differently as they get bigger? I mean, for, um, uh, you know, usually in various types of businesses, systems, even, you know, team, even people, whatever, you know, work up until a certain point. And then if you want to go to the next level, you have to evolve, right? It's the reason why companies bring in professional management, you know, whereas in the beginning, it's probably the advisor who is, you know, handling a lot of this stuff. So from your point of view on the systems operations side or whatever, what do you see at those various sort of levels that these uh, RAs hit as they grow? It was right after I launched PFI Advisors, and I wish I had read it right before I launched PFI Advisors, but right <laughs> after I read the, the fantastic book, The E-Myth Revisited. Yes. And they, they, they give the, such a great, I mean, there's plenty of different examples and stories, but the one that I always remember is they say, you're a great plumber. You're the best plumber in town and you're, you have a boss and you're working for, for a company. And you say, I don't need a boss anymore. I'm a great plumber. And you go out and you start your own plumbing business. And then the, in the book, they say, now being a plumber and being an owner of a plumbing business are two complete, <laughs> very yes. different yes. skill sets. And you can fail very quickly as the owner of a plumbing business. And, and it just, it applies to our, our business so much, right? You, you are a great financial advisor. You know how to take care of your clients. You know how to grow the business from a, from a top line revenue perspective. You know how to bring in more assets. Um, and it's all about client service, getting referrals, business development, and then owning an advisory business is, is a completely different skill set. You need to build out career paths for your employees. You, obviously, there's the whole technology piece of it and, and figuring out the infrastructure of your firm. Um, you need to figure out workflows and, and, and or, again, bring somebody in, uh, bring in a COO or whatever it is, bring in professional management. But I think in those early days, advisors you know, the, the four partners of the business, they draw straws. I'm going to be CEO, you're going to be COO, uh, UBCIO, and then uh, somebody's CCO. And those four advisors realize after about 30 days that, you know, all of the financial upside for me is based on net new assets. And, and nobody's going to come to me at the end of the year and say, hey, how efficient is the company? Uh, so I need to go work on business development. And I need, and, and so all those C-suite uh, job descriptions, job responsibilities start to go by the wayside. And so that's where they, 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 they need to bring in professional management. And, and people ask me all the time, what's the AUM number? And I, I don't know. It, it really has to do with the complexity of the business, number of employees, um, complexity of the clients. Um, so it's very hard to say, you know, at hundred million, do you need professional management? Is it at 700 million? Is it 1 billion? It's very hard to say, but if you feel like um, administrative tasks are slowing things down. And, and if things are starting to slip through the cracks from a client service perspective, it's probably time to let the advisors just focus on, on client service and business development and bring in somebody else uh, that can focus on the administration and, and management of the firm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because you know, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, 
of Gerber's The E-Myth. Uh, and another book that sort of applies here is, um, is a book called uh, The Dip. Oh, excuse me. There's a book called The Dip um, uh, by Seth Godin. And, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, he talks about, and I think I might be combining two things, but I'm pretty sure this is in that book, um, where, uh, you know, effectively what happens is, you, you know, you grow and get to a point where your current business model doesn't work anymore, whether it's bringing professional management or upgrading your technology, or maybe some of your employees aren't able to sort of step up as you grow. Um, and, there's a point at which in order to go to this level, you have to make an investment. It's an investment of money, of time, of maybe hiring people, maybe paying outside consultants. And what happens is it's a tough decision to make because you dip for a while. Like in other words, your profit is going to go down for a temporary period of time. If you do it right, it's going to go back up and be able to go to higher heights. But, you know, it's just impossible to just continue it going because you hit this threshold, you hit this plateau where you can't just do anymore and you got to make an investment. 100%. I spoke with a CEO of a multi-billion dollar firm this week, and he was kind of just going through the, the history of the firm. And he said, you know, those first couple of years, you're just scrapping and you're just, it's more about survival. I just need to get revenue up to a point that we're, <laughs> that we're surviving. He says, then you start to get a, a little bit of profit and you feel so good about it. It's like, oh man, I can take a salary. But that's the point. Unfortunately, that's where then you need to, thank God we have a little bit of money. We can invest into the business. He says, then we had to, we had to stop profits for two, two more years, just making investments. He goes, but then in that third year, we just exploded. He yeah. says, but it, man, does it take a while to get there? <laughs> yeah, it's re it's really true. And, and listen, it's why a lot of um, small businesses of any type, including, you know, advisors, uh, you know, may, may stay small because they don't want to do that. And by the way, I don't have any, I want to be clear. I don't have any judgment on that. I've yep. said this in various contexts. If, if somebody wants to build a, a nice practice in the RA space or a small business in another space, you know, uh, uh, you know what's often called the lifestyle business, and you know, especially in, in this industry, right? I mean, people can have. I mean, lifestyle business in the RA space makes a heck of a lot more money <laughs> for people than a lot of people make in other spaces. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, so you know, it's. Uh, I don't have any judgment or criticism on it. It's just that uh, many of them, uh, not all of them, many of them say they want to grow. And, uh, you know, uh, but they don't want to make the sacrifice. Well, you got to make a choice. You can't do both. And, and then also in your world, it's, it's, I want a lifestyle practice, but I'm going to sell my lifestyle practice for 11 times. <laughs> right, right, right. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's, it, you, you, either one, there two, it's a barbell. You got to choose one and both are fine. Both are great, but there's, there's, there's sacrifices and there's, there's, um, uh, consequences to, to those decisions, uh, wh whichever way you decide to go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, is there any, anything else that you're seeing in the industry in terms of trends or just in, you know, in your, in the evolution of your firm and the kind of services that clients need, you know, that just anything interesting you're seeing in the RA space that we haven't talked about? You, I think you and I talked about this a couple of days ago. Um, the, you know, 2020 was such a wacky year for everybody. Um, I've joked for our business, PFI, I've always said that the biggest risk to our business model is uh, everything we've been talking about. RIA owners identify as financial advisors first and business owners second. So are, are, is any RIA owner slash financial advisor interested in what we have to offer, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, efficiencies, profitability, et cetera. Sending everyone home last year unearthed a whole lot of operational inefficiencies and our phone's been ringing quite a bit. A lot of owners now have realized 
there is something to this efficiency. There is something to investing in technology. I think that it, it um, and a lot of the custodians have also, uh, obviously they've been talking a lot about um, uh, COVID pushed the digital onboarding of clients, you know, ahead yes. several years, right? In one year's time. But I think this, this evolution of quote practices to businesses has been pushed forward a couple of years in this past year as well. I think it's, it's, it's driven a lot of advisors slash RA owners that have been saying, we'll get to that someday. We'll get to that someday. I think they realized in the last 12 months that, 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 you know, they need, they need to make those investments into their businesses now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that is an interesting uh, trend, right? I mean, and, and it, it is where, uh, you know, I talk about this a little bit as well in that conversation where, you know, they talk about this K economy where uh, there are definitely uh, businesses that are on the downstroke of that. And then there are, uh, you know, the up, the upstroke of the K, uh, a lot of businesses are doing well because anytime there's change, you know, anytime there's this challenge, there's also opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'm, um, I, you know, I'm not happy that it sort of took that, you know, for uh, the RA owners to start realizing they should be focusing on that because I think they should have been anyway. But that's pretty typical, you know. That that's what happens. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I remember. Um, I think I, I think I actually just shared this in a recent uh, episode that came out. I, I don't know. This is double getting away. I remember I was at a panel. I had a panel um, of billionaires one time, and uh, they were talking about how the mistakes they made and when things went bad and how they. And one guy, uh, you know, had gone bankrupt, and now he was worth multiple billions of dollars. And uh, and you know, they said somebody said to him, "Well, what 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 was your biggest mistake when you went bankrupt?" And he said, "Well, I mistook a bull market for brilliance." <laughs> you know, and uh, the reason I love that is, you know, you can say the same thing, you know, on a company level, right? You know, if if things are just booming along and business is coming in, and you know, and uh, like, you know, profitability in in boom times and easy times can cover up a lot of sins. Uh, and there's stuff you probably should have been dealing with, but you know, when, when things get tighter or things are more challenged in various ways, whether it's because of money or because it's, you got to have people work from home or whatever, it reveals these things. hundred percent. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, uh, this is accelerated things, which is good. Um, and you know what? So what are the let's 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 talk about it specifically. What you know? What have you seen of the COVID-related challenges? What you know? What kind of shifts did people have to make in their operations in the you know in their in their business and their technology? Um, you know, other than you know having everybody learn how to be in a Zoom box for their entire day. Um, you know, uh, you know what what has come up uh, for advisors during during this last 10, 11 months. I, I mean, we had to, we, we only have, we have a very small team. There's a whopping four of us here at PFI and we even struggled with it. And so, I, and I've talked to many, many RIAs that the, the biggest thing they struggled with early on and, and most have solved it is the internal communication versus client communication. Yeah. Trying to do it all through email was just overwhelming when you're trying to communicate with your team. Hey, where are you on this project or how's it going? Or, um, you know, Hey, give me an update on the discussions with, the, the, the firms were looking that we potentially could merge with, et cetera. Having that in emails, burying the client uh, requests, hey, can we set up time to talk? It was just, just overwhelming for everybody. So a lot of firms have, have gone to you know, Microsoft Teams or Slack or, or you know, any of these kind of instant messaging systems and, and just removed internal communication onto a whole nother platform. And so they can talk, quote, talk, uh, through, through that. And then leaving email open just for uh, client communication, I think is, is, has helped the anxiety of a lot of employees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that really makes sense. And it's funny because I had, I don't, you know, you know better than I do because you're more on the tech side, but like I had before this, I, I feel like I have, I had seen um, companies outside the industry using Slack a lot, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I hadn't seen it as much, you know, as an example in the RA space prior to COVID. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody, Zoom was the big one that everybody talked about, but I think Slack has, and Microsoft Teams, but either one of those two, it seemed to be the ones that everybody's um, um, migrated to. So, yeah, I think they've, they've definitely benefited from this. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I don't, uh, you know, I don't play the market. I don't pick stocks. I, I do what most of my clients in this industry, you know, say you should do. You know, I, I, I invest for the long term. I, yep. you know, uh, put money in over time. I have balanced portfolio, all that kind of stuff. I don't pay attention to it day to day. But there was there was definitely part of me that looked back and said, wait a second, Corey, you was you were uh, sort of ahead of the curve and not enough to five years before COVID um, have established your firm to be able to work fully remotely. You were on Zoom already. Yep. You were very aware of it. You were using it. Why the heck didn't you invest in Zoom when this thing started? Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like again, I don't generally do that, but I sort of think like that's what you could have called, Corey. You know? Yep. Exactly. It was. It was literally, literally staring us all in the face, right? <laughs> Zoom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Too funny. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously. Uh, um, coming out of a lot of there's been a lot of talk across industries uh, about you know as we start to see hopefully the light at the end of the tunnel coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm um, the president of the New York chapter of the National Speakers Association. And I, I mean, this is all speakers talk about, right? When they can get back on stages and how they pivoted to virtual, and, and you know whether events are going to go hybrid, and um, you know, but but obviously it applies to any industry as things are going to evolve. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about where things are going to go back to quote unquote normal, uh, where there's going to be a new normal, wh you know, where there have been permanent changes that have been triggered by, you know, uh, uh, by COVID, right? A lot of technology companies have said nobody ever has to come back to the office or some yeah. of them have at least. Um, what do you see in the RA space, uh, you know, from that strategy operations technology side? Uh, are you getting a feel from your clients as to what the new normal is going to be, you know, for a lot of them, uh, once we get clear of this horrible pandemic? I don't think we're going to go a hundred, you know, we're never going back to offices. I don't, I don't think that's even on the, the, the margin, I don't think that's going to be the answer. I think that um, everyone's work from home policy flexibility uh, it will be a heck of a lot higher. I think everybody assumed if I can't see my employee, they're not working. And we've all sort of proven that over the last 11 months um, that, that that's not true. So I think that it will be some hybrid form of, um, hey, if everybody wants to work, you know, obviously we have to, to calendar it and stagger it and we can't have everybody out on Friday. Um, but I think it's going to something along the lines of, you know, if employees want to work one day a week uh, from home, um, we're, we're okay with that. I think it'll be some some form of, of hybrid, um, um, you know, talk about you missed the investment on Zoom. I saw somebody online recently said, buy real estate 90 minutes outside of all the metropolitan yeah. areas, because yeah. if you only have to go to the office twice a week, <laughs> that, that commute isn't that bad, right? You, you can't do it every day, but you can do a 90 minute commute <laughs> uh, a couple times a week. So I think that that's where we're headed is, is they're going to allow people to work from home um, periodically. Um, but, but I don't think it's going to be, we don't, we don't need office space 
um, or I don't think it's going to be, we only need a, a conference room to meet clients. I think that everybody does, especially as this thing keeps dragging on, people are really missing the collaboration and wanting to be in the same office together. But I just, I, I think that it's going to be a lot more flexible um, and allowing people to, to, to pick and choose, hey, um, Susie's day is Tuesday and Johnny's day is Wednesday, you know, whatever to work, to work from home. I think we'll see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so circling back to one sort of last uh, uh, reflection on the impact of what you do in deals. Uh, and then we'll, uh, uh, I'll come into my last couple of questions for you, but um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to just make a statement and then maybe you can expand, expand on it and uh, say a little more. But, you know, I believe one of the one of the most underestimated things uh, or, you know, one of them is uh, in, in, in um, ease of selling a company and also in valuation is this efficient, is these efficiencies, these systems, these coordination, right? Um, you know, uh, it, whether it's raising capital, whether it's uh, selling, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, um, scalability, right? And uh, profitability are two huge factors in how valuable a company is. And I feel like people underestimate that. You know, is, is, have you seen that? I mean, obviously you've worked at some, you know, some, some, some big places. You see it in the industry. Um, I, th you know, I, I think it's something that if you ask somebody, they would agree logically, but I don't think most firms are paying as much attention to that, uh, you know, as, the, as they could be. And I may even actually put, put the question back to you because I don't know where the inflection point is. I feel like the larger firms definitely, because they're looking for yeah. PE investment, right? That's they're right. looking for, they absolutely need to be investing heavily and in being efficient. The buyer obviously is buying the recurring cash flow and they want, they want uh, assurances that, that as more AUM comes in, that, that the firm is going to continue, you know, those, those cash flows, the profitability of the firm will, will maintain and, and hopefully even improve. I, I, every once in a while, we'll have a $100 million firm call and say, hey, PFI, can we spend money with you to upgrade all of our technology so that a buyer will be more interested in us? And I say, I always give kind of a real estate analogy. I say, you know, you're selling your house don't spend $25,000 upgrading the bathroom, right. hoping you're going to get a $15,000 more on the sales price. It's not a good use of your money. That's the, right. Actually leave the bathroom or the kitchen, whatever it is, looking like 1978, because the buyers are going to come in and want to rip out, rip it out and put their own stuff in anyway. That's so right. I, I don't think, in, again, I'm, I'll ask you, I don't know where the, exactly that inflection point is, but some, the smaller firms, I don't think need to do major spend and upgrade technologies and get efficiencies and hoping to sell to a 700 million or a billion dollar firm, but the multi-billion dollar firms that are expecting private equity to come in, they 100% need to be doing, uh, investing in efficiencies and scalability. Yeah, I 100% agree with that uh, distinction. I, and I love the sort of, you know, house, you know, uh, yeah. bathroom, kitchen upgrade, whether analogy, uh, it really, it really makes sense. You know, sometimes those investments make sense and sometimes they don't, and certainly at a, at a small level, you know, the, the acquirer is going to integrate you into their, I mean, if you're a hundred million dollars, especially, you know, you're going to be getting integrated into their infrastructure, into their systems, into their whatever. So to spend money on that, uh, I mean, what you, um, I mean, if you spend money on anything, if you are um, so bad that, you know, it's like you can't get accurate numbers or you can't, you know, you know, which I've seen, uh, you know, uh, or whatever. I mean, you know, you have to get to a point where uh, you're, 
level of uh, inefficiency doesn't re- you know uh, create major uh, worry about risk. Um, but you know, but but if you're at that level, you don't need to be state of the art or anything because yeah, you're going to be gobbled up. So yeah, the, I think the question, I think you raised it right, Matt. The question is, you know, uh, where is that line? And I think uh, I think more so, it's sort of like okay, you know, are you um, you know are you big enough where you're looking to continue to to scale and then eventually either you know uh, get bought out by private equity or whatever, or you know are you much more going to be a just a, a target of a uh, of another, you know, RA firm that's yeah. going to acquire you, you know, that's, you know, that's probably the bigger distinguishing point. Um, you know, and those obviously happen more often at certain breakpoints, but not, you know, but it's, it varies. Um, well, great stuff. Any, um, any, any last thoughts before I ask you my final two questions? No, I think we've, we've hit it. I mean, again, uh, you're more the expert on, on the, on the deals than I am, but it just feels like we're, we're in this, the, 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 the frenzied pace of M&A activity doesn't look like it's slowing anytime soon. <laughs> and for a whole slew of reasons, I do think professional management and the professionalization of our industry is, is, is going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about it. And listen, that bodes well, uh, you know, for your business, it bodes well yeah. for my business. And listen, we never, you know, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, they say whether it's the book Black Swan itself or the lots of like, you know, we never know when the, when the next Black Swan is coming. And for many businesses, COVID was their Black Swan. Fortunately for the RA space, it has not been, um, you know, but uh, you never know. But outside of that, yeah, d- definitely, definitely agree. So, Matt, um, if people want to uh, find out more about you uh, and PFI and what you guys do, uh, where should they go? pfiadvisors.com. Um, we, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, being a small business owner and, and uh, we, we, we put out a, 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 an article a week on our blog, ranging from, from nerdy, deep in the weeds technology articles to, um, you know, the one that you reached out on me was, was top five mistakes buyers make when integrating acquisitions. So we yes. cover all things RIA uh, uh, operations technology. We, we do touch on M&A. Um, and every once in a while, uh, I'll throw in a, a, an Eddie Van Halen article in there or something, <laughs> something <laughs> kind of fun. But uh, I, we, the, the blog is updated very regularly. And, and, and uh, we also have a, a COO Roundtable podcast that, that is also accessible on PFIadvisors.com. Excellent. You know, and, and I'm, I'm really actually deficient because that did trigger the, I mean, listen, we've known each other so long. That did trigger my thought of, of saying, hey, let's get Matt on the podcast. Yeah. Just quickly give us what, what are the top five you know, reasons? <laughs> yeah, the, the top five mistakes. Um, it was funny when, when I wrote it. I mean, we, this is obviously the ones that we're seeing as a consultant. But, but I, I asked around before we published the article and, and, and a lot of people said, oh, my God, we made that mistake. Oh, we made that mistake. So I knew we were on to something. But number one is, and I know you agree with this one, you don't have organic growth down yet and you try to go and do inorganic. Like yeah. if you don't have a foundation if yeah. your systems aren't aren't supporting the the organic growth of your business, you're definitely not going to the inorganic is not going to go well. So you got to have a foundation uh, of organic growth before you get into the M&A game. That was number 1. Number 2, not understanding who your ideal client is or what the ideal client of the combined firm is. Um, people come to me all the time, which which performance reporting system should I use? I'll just go buy that one and I say, "Well, I need to know who you're trying to serve." And, and it gets even more complicated with an M&A transaction. Who is the buyer uh, serving and who is the seller serving? And then more importantly, the combined firm, what is, who is your ideal client? How are you trying to service them? So that's, that's number two is not having that figured out in your head. Um, 
Three is putting the deal maker who has no operations experience in charge of the post-merger integration. <laughs> that one might be the number one that I see all the time. Well, you're the deal guy. So you, you were able to get the deal done, the valuation, the deal structure. So now go pick the performance reporting tool. Now go pick the CRM and move the data from one to the other. That's a huge mistake. Yeah. Um, it's just a di very different skill set. Uh, number four, they split the integration teams into too many subcommittees and everything's decided in silos. So mm -hmm. CRM team, you go make that decision in a vacuum without thinking about how it's going to affect all the other systems we have and workflows, et cetera. You're the client portal team. You go make that decision in a vacuum. It's a big, big mistake. It, 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 uh, things just, just get out, come out wonky <laughs> when, when everything's decided in a vacuum. And then the last one is assuming if everything happens to line up and buyer and seller actually do have ident identical tech stacks, assuming, well, 75% of the integration work is done. Because again, your ideal clients may be different. The way you're servicing your clients may be different. The workflows and processes around those, that ideal tech stack of both firms could be very different. Um, and so th there's still a lot of integration work that needs to be done, even if the stars align and everything from a tech stack perspective lines up. So those are the top five th that we wrote about recently. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was such a great article. And I had, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, it I think I had actually uh, pinged you to, you know, to potentially come on in the past. But but like that, that that one really said, oh, this is the perfect deal angle. Right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, uh, obviously uh, that's what we talk about here. And that and, that, and that's a great tie in. So it's actually good. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I originally intended to start with that question and I didn't, you know, we just flowed for a while, but I actually <laughs> like ending on that, uh, on that five, you know, uh, those five points, those five uh, biggest mistakes people make. Um, so that's great. So Matt, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And uh, freedom for me means everything from freedom from any, everybody in the world to, you know, live their life and be, and not be oppressed. And, uh, uh, to, you know, the reason I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I, you and I have talked about being an entrepreneur, you know, and the benefits of it and the, uh, and, and also the challenges, but, um, you know, so, you know, for me, it sort of permeates my life. Uh, and, um, you know, and it's one of the reasons I love supporting advisors going independent, right. Cause for me, like independent, that's freedom, right. <laughs> so, um, what does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business in life? I, so free, when you say the word freedom, I think I, I go very, for some reason, my head went very internal and it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's feeling good about yourself and not being, you know, don't have any demons and, and kind of the, the butterflies. So I think maybe it's because I'm a UCLA grad. We're always sort of contractually obligated to talk about John Wooden. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Talk about John Wooden, but his definition of success is so fantastic, which is the self-satisfaction of knowing that you've, you know, put it, put your all out there and you've, you've realized your potential. And mm -hmm. so that sort of is the definition of freedom for me is, is do I feel like uh, at the end of the day that, that, that whether it's that specific day or we're talking about a week or a month or a year, whatever it is, but I just have that self-satisfaction that feels like freedom to me. I don't have that weight on my shoulders of I really didn't fulfill my, not fulfill my destiny is too cheesy, but I didn't fulfill my potential. I think that's where, where, where I go with that question. Love it. Love it. Matt Sonnen, thank you so much for being a guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. 
Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.